As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, and honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church, especially if this is your first time. It's great to see you and great to have you with us. Happy Halloween, if that's your thing. Not really my thing. I need pro high fructose corn syrup. I'll make that known. I feel like it's getting a bad rep. Happy Reformation Day, perhaps more appropriately. And we have been in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Luke now for about three months. And so we are in the second half of the book of or of Mark, rather, and um, and in Mark, in the second half of Mark, we're basically intensified to where we're looking at the final few weeks of Jesus' life, and we're seeking to understand how he lived, and, and what it means for us to follow in his way today, what it looks like to be a disciple of his in the 21st century. And, you know, there's something that Jesus talks about more than almost any other topic, and as he gets to the end of his life, he begins talking about it even more, more than even relationships, heaven and hell, how to find true satisfaction, and it's money. He talks about money over and over throughout the Gospels, and even as he gets closer to the end of his life, he begins to talk about money and possessions even more. Now, why is that? Well, what we see over and over in the Gospels is that Jesus wants our hearts. He goes to the very core of who we are. He, he seeks the transformation of the deepest places of our lives. Money is often one of the very last things that a person gives up when they come to Christ. And so Jesus has hard words for us, convicting words for us, and yet also words that are completely life-giving. They're comforting and encouraging because they, they set us free. They show us a better way of living. They show us a way of, of entering into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wants our hearts, and he wants nothing less than our total transformation.
transformation. And so there's three things that we're going to see from Jesus' words on money. We're going to look at the posture that we can take, the practices that we can embrace, and then the, the patient hope that can sustain us. So I want to go back to seminary. So there's got to be some alliteration like every now and then. So we've got the posture, the practices, and the patient hope. Let's start with the posture in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. The teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Now we'll pause there. And this passage is often called the story of the rich young ruler, right? tend to call it the story of the college-educated young professional because that sticks just a little bit more deeply, the college-educated young professional. And it's because this guy is, is the kind of person that we tend to look up to or want to be like in our society or, or in their society. This is a, a good person. This is somebody who has kept the rules, somebody who is religious. They, they participate in church life. This is the kind of person you want to be friends with, the kind of person you want your, your daughter to marry. This is just a good guy, right? He's doing all the right things. He's a little bit dramatic because he falls on his knees. He says, I've done the entire law, right? But in general, this is just a good person. Verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Got that. Verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Says that this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Maybe the biggest misconception about Christianity is that it's about following the law, or it's about doing good, doing, doing all the right things to make yourself a good person, to, to seem very good on the outside. And yet all throughout the scriptures, we see that that's not the case. In the Old Testament, God is continually telling Israel, I don't need any more sacrifices. You are, you are wearing me out with your offerings. What I want instead is your heart. In the New Testament, Jesus is continually going to the heart of every matter. He's continually going to our hearts to get the very core of our being that he might transform us and so that goodness might flow out of that. And so we have to remember that what Jesus is telling this, this wealthy young professional to do, it's not doing more of what he's already doing, because he's already doing a lot. Jesus isn't saying he must do more than that. He's asking him to do something totally different. The command is, is to totally reorient his life, not to just add one more thing on top of it. So Jesus goes right to the heart with this man. Jesus doesn't universally demand that all of his followers give away all of their money or become poor, but he knew this young man's heart. This man was willing to do all the things. He was probably tithing already, but Jesus says, give it all away. Now it says that the young man went away sad. Now why would he go away sad? He goes away sad because he knows he has just chosen money and he knows it won't make him happy. 
Like, if he really felt like the money would make him happy, he would probably go away prideful or something, but he goes away sad because he knows that this life path that he's on is not really going to satisfy him. And so this posture that Jesus is envisioning for us is contentment. He's calling us to not only be, be poor or, or, or to have less because we're giving it away, but rather to be poor in spirit. He's inviting us into a poverty of spirit. A contentment. Contentment is one of the older virtues that the church used to teach on all the time. It comes from the, the Greek word content, which just is two different words meaning full and soul, and it just puts them together. So to be content is to have a full soul. It's not full in itself, but it's full by itself. A content soul has everything that it needs and needs nothing more. And so our culture describes financial freedom as having enough money to buy anything. But the scriptures show that true freedom is having enough contentment that you don't need anything. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. This posture of contentment is totally lacking from this young man, and he cannot separate from his money and possessions. Money is at the very core of his identity, his, his own view of himself, his understanding of who he is, and nobody just gives up their core that easily. Richard Foster has written, Without Christ, we have no unity or focus around which our lives are oriented. Because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us to an insane attachment to things. Now, it really is insane to put our entire life, our, our identity, the core of our beings, into things that can so easily be taken away. Things that, that you know, fade and, and rust and, and can be thrown out at any minute. Jesus is inviting this young man to put his, his heart in the right place. Now, this is, this is one of, the, I think, the most convicting and, and even the most terrifying passages in the Gospels. And the reason that it is so for me is because I think at the core of it, what, what's so disturbing for me is that this man simply just walks away. At the end of the story, he goes away sad. It's not even so much Jesus' words that are, that are haunting for me, but the fact that Jesus doesn't pursue this man. We see all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is going out of his way to, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. He's, he's touching lepers. He's got time for everybody. He teaches on leaving the 99 and going to seek the one lost person. And you're with this man, he lets him just walk away, knowing that he's chosen the wrong path. And Jesus just turns to his disciples and, and just keeps on going with his teaching in his life. There are really only two groups of people in the Gospels that Jesus does not go out of his way to reach and to serve, and it's the religious and the wealthy. For the religious leaders, Jesus says his strongest warnings, and, and for the, the rich and the well-off and the comfortable, Jesus just barely does anything at all. I mean, he just tells them the truth, tells them what they can do to come to him, but if they don't do it, he lets them leave. And so when we think about our, our life and our culture and how much we have relative to how much they had in the past in other cultures, 
Do we recognize that we are this wealthy young person? It gets terrifying because we can see that people who, who have no need of Jesus will be sent away empty-handed. This man thinks that he has all that he needs. He's looking for kind of one more thing. He wants to have all of his money and possessions and have Jesus on the side. And Jesus goes right to his heart and says, give everything away and you can follow me. Poverty with Christ is far better than all the wealth in the world without him. So this is the posture that Jesus is teaching us, contentment, true freedom. Now this contentment comes, and it's, it comes in a couple of ways, but there are a few practices that come along with this contentment. That's the second thing. In verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so Jesus says it's impossible for the rich to part with their money except by a work of God. Only through the power of the gospel, only through the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, through a, a new life, only then can somebody part with their money and possessions. And so this requires a, a sort of double act, a change of heart and a change of habit. A change of heart and a change of habit. So you may remember in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 19, Jesus calls out to the tax collector Zacchaeus to come down from the tree, and he goes and he eats with them. And if you remember this story, what Zacchaeus says, he says, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And it's after that Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And so it's simultaneously that, that this rich man, Zacchaeus, we can call him Zach, Zach has both a change of heart and a change of habit. Jesus says salvation has come because he sees that his heart has changed and that that's demonstrated by the change of his habits. He's actually giving his wealth away. Jesus doesn't even ask him, but after a couple of hours, Zach immediately wants to give everything to Jesus. And so we need a change of heart, that's contentment, but we also need a change of habits. And oftentimes it's not our, our actions that follow our feelings, but rather our actions lead us into proper feelings. So if you say, I'm, I'm waiting for my heart to change before I go and do something, if you know that thing is right, then you do it and your heart will follow. And so here are the two practices that the scriptures talk about related to money more than anything else. The first one is simplicity. Simplicity is an intentionally reduced life. It's about making space in your life and your, your budget for other people, and it comes out of true contentment. So when you have a, a full soul, when you are content in Christ, when your interior world is absorbed with God and you can say, I have enough, then you have the freedom to live within your means, to live a simple lifestyle. Simplicity for us in our culture is a subversive rejection of accumulation. This, this world story that tells us to just get more and more and more and more. Simplicity is about living within your means because you're not controlled by your income or your bank account or even your job. 
We go back to Paul's words in 1 Timothy. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He's saying if you love money, you never have enough. It's a, it's a trap that you fall into. And to get more, you'll pursue all sorts of things you never do otherwise just to keep up the chase. There's a famous quote from John D. Rockefeller. He's one of the first billionaires in the world many years ago. And somebody asked him, how much is enough? And he famously said, just a little bit more. That's the default posture of our hearts. I need just a little bit more. Whatever it is, a little bit more will make me happier. Now, we learned a, a practice some years ago from some of our friends when we looked back in Louisville, and we called it No Spend November. Uh, so what some of our friends did, and they were actually really, really wealthy, and yet you would never know it, but they took a month out of every year to basically not spend any money at all. Like, you can buy groceries, you can buy, like, the basic things, and, you, you know, you have to pay your bills. But in terms of, like, going out to eat or buying clothes or things that you just want but maybe don't necessarily need, what they would do and what we've picked up over time is just taking a month, a year, to sort of hit reset on that. That have a month where you basically spend as little as possible simply to reorient your heart. It's kind of like fasting. There's nothing wrong with eating food, but by going without food for a period of time, it, it changes the way you think about it. It changes the way you think about what you need versus what you want. And so it's hard. I know November starts tomorrow. We started a couple weeks early this year. The biggest challenge is Black Friday because everything's like 80% off. We realize like they've been overcharging us all year. But simplicity is... The practice of contentment. When you're content, simplicity can flow as a lifestyle out of that. And yet that simplicity also cultivates a content heart. Now, that's the first one. The first practice is simplicity. The second practice is generosity. Generosity is refusing to spend 100% of your own money on yourself. Generosity maybe is the most, most helpful sign of a, of a content heart. When somebody is content with what they have in the Lord, generosity will be the demonstration of that. Of course, it takes a complete internal transformation for us to part with our money. That's why it's sometimes called the last conversion. As I've mentioned, that somebody can come to Christ and they'll have all these major decisions they make along the way, but money often is the hardest one that comes at the very end. Now, it is hard to give. It's hard to give. If you're young and maybe you've got a college debt that you're trying to get out of, it feels really hard to give in that point. And you want to just finish it all first. But then you get a little bit older and you get a mortgage and a car payment or two car payments and you think, I've got all these payments, I really need to focus on these things and I'm going to give and I'm going to be generous a little bit later. And then I sit with older people and they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I just talked to my financial advisor and he says I'm behind on my retirement fund, so I need to just really pour into that so I'm going to be generous at another time. And the point is that there's never a good time to be generous. It's just never easy to part with your money or with your possessions. You know, it's a very, very generous church. If you were at the dinner on Wednesday night, I got to share that we were like, way above budget, and we've kind of always been above budget, so we're going to be able to give away a lot of money to missions in December, and your generosity makes it easier, in a sense, to teach on money, because I know that you are people who already practice 
these things. We don't make a huge deal about tithing here. You know? Like we don't ask for the plates every week and like you know you like send the deacons down the aisle and they like shake it right in front of your face and like glare at you and you know <laughs> judge you row by row if one comes out empty. And yet we don't shy away from what the, the Bible has to say about money and possessions either. They're hard words, but they set us free as well. And so the few practices, we talk about this in the, the membership class. If you're brand new to giving, if you're new to Christianity, the first thing we recommend is just to begin giving on a regular basis at whatever amount it is. Now we have college students here to give like $20 a month through our online giving, and I, and I love that. Most of our gifts in this church are, are small, $100, $150. If you just started working full-time, just beginning to give monthly is one of the most important things that you can begin to do for your spiritual formation. Now, second is actually tithing monthly. I, I do think the overall pattern of the Bible is to start with a tithe as, as a sort of a foundation or a baseline of giving. Jesus doesn't talk a lot about the tithe. He, basically, whenever he talks about money, he's going straight for the heart. He's talking about all of it. Give it, give it all to me. And yet at the same time, he's, he's not rejecting tithing, but he's intensifying it. He's deepening it in our hearts. And so for some people, tithing is an extremely difficult thing to reach to. And the goal that you're trying to get to for others, tithing might just be where you start and you build from there. And then that's the third thing to give generously. For us, we, Jesse and I got married right out of college. We started tithing like off the first paycheck. We were making like 26000 a year combined. And yet it was so much easier to, to start tithing. I think it was probably e even easier to do it then. And as we've gotten older, I, I don't think it's gotten harder to tithe, but it, I see in myself a, a, just a ton of reluctance to get anything above 2%. So this year we've been able to to get 12% and, and it's a thing where I want that to keep growing in my own heart just to safeguard myself from, from the greed and from the, the comparison that I know is within my own heart. I mean, to give and, and to actually enjoy giving is something that does not come naturally to me. I don't know if it comes naturally to other people, but it certainly doesn't to me. And Tim Keller has said that we should be giving until we feel the burden of the poor. And what he means by that is that we ought to give in a way that actually causes us to, to lower our lifestyle, to lower the, the, the amount of the house that we buy or the, the, the car that we buy, but rather to give enough away that we actually feel some of the poverty that exists in the world. And so contentment is the posture, simplicity, and generosity are the practices that sustain. But here's the last thing. It's the thing that I'm most excited for today. It's the patient hope that can sustain us. I mean, what could possibly sustain a, a life of, of giving yourself away, of giving your money and possessions in a way that, that fits what Jesus is inviting us into? Hear Jesus' words in verse 29. He says to the disciples, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or friends for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now these are, are some challenging verses just to understand, you know, is Jesus really saying that like every 
dollar, whatever percent we give in this life is going to come back a hundred times you know, later in life. It doesn't seem like it's that transactional. But rather, Jesus is pointing to the fact that anything that we give up for him in the gospel will absolutely be worth it in the end. Every, every dollar that we don't spend or every dollar that we give to him and to his gospel will absolutely be worth it in the end. And I believe what he's also saying is it will contribute to eternity itself. One of the realities is that what we do in this life lasts for all eternity and extends into eternity. You know, I sometimes wonder why, why do we as Christians struggle with the commandments around giving? If you know some of the statistics, the average Christian in America gives about 3% of their salary to the church and ministries. I think one of the biggest reasons for this is simply because we don't understand the hope that we have in Christianity. We don't understand eternity and what Jesus has offered us. If you ask the average believer what their hope is in this life, they probably will say something like, to go to heaven when I die, right? Common thing, I want to go to heaven when I die, which is great, absolutely. And yet that alone is not enough to really sustain a vision for life in this world. Because if the entirety of our Christian hope is simply to go to heaven when we die, there's really no motivation to do anything else on earth other than just make sure that we're saved. And yet that is not the Christian hope in its essence. Our, our hope is so much bigger and so much better than merely going to heaven, which often in our minds just means this kind of disembodied, vague, like experience of goodness, and we see our relatives and there's no traffic or whatever. Like us all for going to heaven. It's called the intermediate state in the scriptures where we've died and we go to be with the Lord. But the real hope of the scriptures, it's not going to heaven, it's the new creation. What the scriptures point us to over and over and over again is the new heavens and the new earth. When at the end of the age, when Jesus returns, he is setting all things right again. He is renewing even this broken world. And so at the end of the age, the dead who are in Christ will be resurrected. Those who are living, the believers, they will be transformed. And in a flash, everything that has been promised will come true at once. The heavens and the earth will meet and become as one. God's realm will no longer be separate from ours, but rather, like a wedding, we will be one. We will be in the personal presence of our resurrected Lord. And the scriptures say, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection, it's a, it's a demonstration of Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death, but it's also the first fruits of the new creation. It's proof that all things are being made new, that this new creation begun in the life of Jesus, that it's demonstrated most fully in the resurrection, but it's coming in all of its glory when he returns again. All things will be made new. Every tear will be wiped away. We will be with Jesus as he is here on a renewed earth. And so if the whole point of human life is merely to get to heaven, then nothing we do here matters that much. But if the point of all of human history is the renewal of, of the entire universe under Christ, all things coming under the reign and rule of Jesus, then what we do now matters into eternity and lasts into eternity. What we do here and now is anticipating that final work. There's an author that puts it like this. 
what you do in the present will last into God's future. You are, strange as it might seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in his creation. Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Now, if that's true, that the hope of Christianity is not merely going to heaven, but rather having heaven reached to us and having all things resurrected, entering into the fullness of the glory of God and renewed heaven and new earth, that means that everything we do now can last into eternity. All of our, our good deeds towards one another, all of our care for one another, all of our building up in the church lasts and matters for all eternity. Every act of generosity, giving to the church, to the poor, to the nations, it's an act of Christ-like living into eternity. And it's here that this patient hope makes sense of Jesus' words. Give me everything you have. Give me your entire being, every last ounce, every last cent, and follow me. And you will have treasure in heaven.